You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is Lecture 11, given in Dornach on the 29th of July, 1923. It is entitled Measure, Number, and Weight. Weightless Color, Essential for a New Direction in Painting. During earthly existence, a human being constantly passes through three states of consciousness, as we have mentioned from various points of view during the last few days. The state of being fully awake, sleeping, and dreaming. And I endeavored to give a full explanation of the significance of dreaming in the little lecture cycle during the delegates' meeting. Today we want to start by examining the question of whether it is essential for a human being to experience these three conditions of consciousness while on earth. We must realize that humans are the only beings to experience these three states of consciousness on earth. Animals have an essentially different cycle. An animal does not have a deep dreamless sleep such as human beings have, for most of the time between going to sleep and awaking, but neither does an animal become fully awake like human beings do between awaking and going to sleep. Actually, an animal's waking state is somewhat similar to human dreaming, except that a higher animal's experiences are clearer and richer than transient human dreams. On the other hand, an animal is never unconscious to the same extent as humans are during deep sleep. Therefore, an animal is not so separate from its environment as a human being is. Animals do not distinguish between an outer and an inner world as human beings do. To explain a higher animal's dull consciousness in human terms, an animal actually considers his whole being as part of his environment. If an animal sees a plant, it does not immediately have the feeling, there is a plant out there and I am a separate being. But the animal has a strong inner experience of the plant, a direct feeling of sympathy or antipathy antipathy. It is as though the animal experienced within him the outer manifestation of the plant. Solely the fact that in our day and age people cannot observe anything but the crudest perceptions prevents them seeing the truth of what I say in the actual behavior of animals. Only human beings have this clear, sharp distinction between their inner world and the outer world. Why do we acknowledge an outer world? What brings us to the point of talking of an inner and an outer world? It is because every time we go to sleep we are in our ego and our astral body outside our physical and etheric bodies. That while we are asleep we leave our physical and etheric bodies to themselves, so to speak, and are in the company of the things of the outer world. We share the fate of the objects of our environment while we are asleep. 
Just as tables and chairs, trees and clouds are outside our physical and etheric bodies while we are awake, and therefore we call them outside world, our own astral body and ego belong to the outside world during sleep. And while we are part of the environment with our ego and astral body during sleep, something happens. To understand what happens, let us start first of all from what happens when we confront the world in our normal waking state. The objects are then outside us. And by means of scientific thinking, human beings have eventually brought things to the point where the only properties they acknowledge as belonging to physical objects are those which can be measured, weighed, and counted. The content of our earthly science is determined according to number, measure, and weight. We do our sums with the methods of calculation that apply to things of earth. We weigh and measure them. And the physical world consists of what we can determine by means of number, measure, and weight. We would not describe a body as being physical if we could not prove its reality with scales. But all that belongs to the realm of color and tone, even sensations of warmth and cold, in fact actual sense perceptions, just float on the surface of things that can be weighed, measured, and counted. If we want to determine a particular physical object, what constitutes its physical existence is what can be counted, measured, and weighed, and that is all the physicists want to concern themselves with. Regarding colors and sounds and so on, they say, quote, something is going on out there that also has something to do with counting and weighing, close quote. With regard to color, they actually say, quote, there are vibrations out there which have an effect on people. And when these impressions affect the eye, E-Y-E, they are called color. And when they affect the ear, they are called sound, and so on. Close quote. One could actually say that the modern physicist does not know what to make of things like sound, color, heat, and cold. He just thinks of them as attributes of the things that can be counted, measured, and weighed. Colors adhere, as it were, to physical things. Sounds escape from them. Heat and cold ooze out of them. We say of something that has weight that it has warmth or it is warm. When a person is in the state between going to sleep and awaking, things are different for his ego and astral body. In the first place, things are non-existent as far as the aspect of weight, measure, and number is concerned. According to earthly measure, number, and weight, the things are not there. However strange it may seem, while we are asleep, there are not the sort of things round us that can be weighed, nor are there things that can be counted, nor directly measured. As an ego and astral body in the sleeping state, you could not use a measuring stick. What does exist there, if I may express it like this, are unattached sense impressions moving freely about. But human beings at their present stage of development are not capable of perceiving an unattached red or waves of unattached sound moving about freely. If we want to make a diagram of this, there's one, we could do it like this. One could say, quote, here on earth we have solid weighable objects, 
and the redness or yellowness which the senses perceive on them adheres, as it were, to these objects. When we are asleep, redness and yellowness move about freely and are not fixed to conditions of weight. And it is the same with sound. It is not the bell that rings, but the ringing that moves freely. When we go about in our physical world and see something, we lift it up, don't we? Until we do that, we do not know whether it is a real object or an optical illusion. It must have weight. That is why we are so inclined to consider something like the colors of the rainbow as optical illusion, because they appear in the physical world without our feeling them to be heavy. If you open up if you open a physics book nowadays, you will find the explanation, quote, that is an optical illusion, close quote. What is regarded as actually real are the raindrops, and the physicists put in lines which have no connection with what is there, but which they imagine as passing through space, and they call these rays. But these rays are not there at all. They then say that the eye projects them. They make use of projection in a very strange way in physics these days. For instance, we get hold of the idea that we see a red object, and in order to convince ourselves that it is not an optical illusion, we lift it up. It is heavy, so that is a guarantee of its reality. Anyone who attains consciousness in his ego and astral body, outside the physical and etheric bodies, eventually realizes that these free-floating colors and sounds also have something of a similar nature, yet it is different. Free-floating colors have the urge to vanish into the far reaches of the world. They have an anti-gravity. Earthly things press toward the earth's center. See diagram, there's a diagram. These press outward to be released into world spaces. And there certainly is something similar to measurement. Maybe that again. Earthly things press toward the earth's center. See diagram, page 153, arrows going down. These arrows going up press outward to be released into world spaces. And there certainly is something similar to measurement here. You discover it if you have, let us say, a small reddish cloud hemmed in by a large yellow formation. Although you do not use a measuring stick, you measure the weaker-looking yellow one qualitatively by means of the red one. And, just as the measuring stick says, that is five meters, here the red one tells you, quote, if I were to spread out, I should go into the yellow one five times. I must expand, I must get larger, then I shall become yellow, close quote. That is how the measurements take place here. It is more difficult to explain the way counting is done here because earthly counting usually takes place with pears or apples which take no interest at all in one another. We always have the feeling that if we were to make the one into two, the one would not actually care whether the two was there at all. It is certainly different where human life is concerned. Now and then one is dependent on two. But that touches on the spiritual realm. In actual earthly mathematics, the divided parts are quite indifferent to the company they are in. That is not the case here. Here, if there is one of a certain kind, it requires the addition of, say, three or five other things, according to what kind of things they are. 
They always have a relation to one another, as number is a reality here. And when one begins to be conscious of what it is like to be out there with one's ego and astral body, one comes to the point of ascertaining something like measure, number, and weight, but now it is of an opposite nature. And when, eventually, one's seeing and hearing out there ceases to be a confusion of red and yellow and of different sounds, one begins to perceive the spiritual beings who realize themselves in these free-flowing sense impressions. Then we enter the positive spiritual world, the life and activity of spiritual beings. Just as we enter into the life and activity of earthly objects here on earth by checking them with scales, measuring stick, and our calculations, we, likewise, enter into an understanding of spiritual beings by acquiring a purely qualitative anti-gravity, that is, a desire to expand into world spaces and to measure color by means of color. Spiritual beings of this nature permeate everything that is outside us in the kingdoms of nature. With his waking consciousness, a human being sees only the outer side of minerals, plants, and animals. But he is in the company of the spiritual element indwelling these creatures of the natural world when he is asleep. And when he enters into himself again on awakening, his ego and astral body maintain their affinity to these outer things and cause the human being to acknowledge an outside world. If our organism were not adapted for sleeping, it would not acknowledge an outer world. It does not depend whether someone suffers from insomnia or not, of course, for I am not saying, quote, if he does not sleep, but if he did not have an organism adapted for sleep, close quote. The fact that we are so organized is what matters. And people do get ill if they suffer from insomnia, because it is not suited to their organization. The actual situation is that it is the very fact of the human being dwelling among the things of the outer world while he is asleep, among the things he calls his outer world when he is awake, that brings him a real, to a realization of an outer world. It is man's relation to sleep which gives him his awareness of earthly truth. In what way? Well, we call it truth if we can make a proper image within us of an outer object and properly experience it. To be able to do this, though, we need to be able to sleep. We would have no concept of the truth if we were not organized for sleep. So we can say that we owe truth to our sleeping state. To be able to appreciate the truth of things, we must spend part of our existence with them. Things only tell us something about themselves because our souls were in their company during sleep. The dream state is different. As I told you in the little delegates conference cycle, dream is related to memory, to our inner life of soul, which lives primarily in memory. If dreams are a world of sound and color floating free, we are still half outside our body. When we fully enter the body, 
the very same forces we unfold in our fleeting dream pictures become our power of memory. In this realm we do not make the same distinction between ourselves and the outer world. Our inner and outer world coincide, and we live so strongly in the outer world with our sympathies and antipathies that we no longer feel sympathy and antipathy for the things, but the sympathies and antipathies reveal themselves in pictures. If we did not have a dream state, nor the power of dream, which continues on into our inner life, we would not have beauty. Our whole capacity for beauty is founded on our being able to dream. Referring to prosaic existence, we have to say we owe our memory to our forces of dreaming, while with reference to man's artistic life, it is beauty we owe to these forces. Therefore, the dream state is connected with beauty. That is to say, the way we feel about something beautiful and the way we create something of beauty are very similar to the weaving activity of dream. In experiencing or creating beauty, we behave in the same way, this time with the use of the physical body, as we behave outside or when partly connected with our physical body when we dream. Actually, the only thing that separates dream from the life of beauty is a small jolt. And it is only because people are too insensitive in the present age of materialism to notice this jolt that there is so little awareness of the whole significance of beauty. One has to surrender to it of necessity in dreams in order to be able to experience the free movement. But when one surrenders oneself to the freedom of being open in one's inner being, that is, after the jolt, one no longer feels it to be the same as dreaming, because although it is the same thing, it now includes the forces of the physical body. It will be a long time before present-day mankind realizes what people of olden times meant when they said, in quotes, chaos. There are innumerable definitions of chaos, in reality, it can only be characterized by saying, quote, when a person arrives at a state of consciousness where he has just stopped experiencing weight and earthly measurement and things have begun to get light yet have not yet dispersed into the cosmos but are still keeping their balance in the horizontal where solid boundaries become blurred and where he still sees things with the physical body, but now also sees the undefined weaving element of the world with his sole constitution of dreaming, that is when chaos is to be seen. Dreams are merely the shadowy approach of chaos. In Greece, people still had a feeling that one cannot actually make the physical world beautiful. The physical world is, after all, natural necessity, and it is like it is. One can only make chaos beautiful. When one transforms chaos into cosmos, beauty arises. That is why chaos and cosmos are complementary concepts. The cosmos, which, me which means beautiful world, cannot be produced out of earthly things, but only by giving form to chaos. What one makes out of earthly things 
is merely a material imitation of formed chaos. This is the case with all art. In Greece, where mystery culture still exerted a certain influence, they still had a very vivid picture of this relationship existing between chaos and cosmos. However, in neither of these worlds, the world in which man is unconscious in the sleeping state, nor the world in which man is half-conscious in the dreaming state, in neither of these worlds does one find goodness. There, the beings, right from the beginning, were predetermined by wisdom. In them one finds the powerful weaving of wisdom, one finds beauty. But if, as men of earth, we reach these beings and want to understand them, it will be pointless to speak of goodness where they are concerned. We can only speak speak of goodness where there is a distinction between an inner and an outer world, so that goodness can obey the spiritual world or not. In the same way as the state of sleep is assigned to truth and the state of dream to beauty, the waking state is assigned to goodness. And here's a little chart. Sleeping state is related to truth. Dreaming state to beauty, chaos. Waking state to goodness. This does not contradict what I have said in the last few days about the need to drop earthly concepts and speak of a moral world order when one leaves the earthly realm and goes out into the cosmos. For the moral world order is just as much predetermined in the spirit as causality is predetermined here on earth. Only the predetermination is spiritual there, so there is no contradiction. Yet we must realize that with regard to the human organization, if we want to reach the concept of truth, we have to turn to the state of sleep. If we want to reach the concept of beauty, we have to turn to the state of dreaming. And if we want to reach the concept of goodness, we have to turn to the state of waking. While awake, therefore, human beings are not disposed in their physical and etheric organisms toward truth, but toward goodness. So we have every reason to need to understand the idea of goodness. Tell me, what are the lines present-day science is working on regarding its explanation of man? It does not attempt to describe man in a waking state by ascending from truth through beauty to goodness, but explains everything on the basis of outer causal necessity, which accords only with the idea of truth. It does not come anywhere near what exists in man when he is awake, but at most only reaches what he is like when he is asleep. Therefore, if you read anthropologies today with a wakeful sense for soul qualities, you will get the following impression, quote, That is all very well what modern science tells us about man, but what kind of state is this man in which science describes? He is lying in bed all the time, close quote. That is to say, he cannot walk, he cannot move. Movement, for instance, is not explained at all. He is perpetually in bed. Science can only explain a human being that lies in bed. It cannot do anything else. Science only describes man when he is asleep. If one wanted to set him in motion, it would have to be done mechanically. And indeed, science is a scientific mechanism. 
They would have to put machinery into the sleeper, which would make him move when he is supposed to get up and put him back to bed again in the evening. This sort of science, as you see, does not tell us anything about man as a waking, living being who is active in the world. For what sets us in motion is not contained in the concept of truth, which in the first place we acquire from outer things, but it is contained in the concept of goodness. People do not think along these lines very much. When a modern physiologist or anatomist describes man nowadays, you have the feeling you would like to say, quote, Wake up! Wake up! You are fast asleep! Close quote. The effect of that kind of world outlook is that people get used to being asleep. And the fact I keep describing of people sleeping their way through so many events it is because they are obsessed by science. Even uneducated people are obsessed by science these days because it infiltrates everywhere by way of popular magazines. There have never been so many obsessed people as there are today. And what they are obsessed by is science. One has to say strange things if one is describing the actual situation today. One has to strike quite a different note from the one people are used to hearing nowadays. That is what it is like when materialists speak of man as being created out of the environment. When materialism was at its height, people wrote books such as the one that included the statement, quote, Man as such is nothing. He is the sum of the oxygen in the air, the degree of heat or cold that he is in, close quote. And this materialistic description ends pathetically with the words, quote, He is actually the product of every puff of air. Close quote. If you enter into a description like that and really imagine what sort of person the materialistic scientist is describing, it is an extreme neurasthenic. Materialists have never described any other kind of person. Even if they never noticed they were describing a human being in a sleeping state sometimes, if they, so to speak, forgot themselves and wanted to go further, they never described any other kind of person than extreme neurasthenics on their very last legs. For science of the modern epoch has never understood a living human being. This is where the great tasks lie, to lead mankind out of the present-day situation into the only situation in which world history can continue. What is needed is a penetration of the spirit. The other pole must be found to that which has already been achieved. What has actually been achieved in the course of the 19th century, a century which has brought such glory for the materialistic outlook, what has been achieved? We can quite honestly say that materialism has succeeded in a wonderful way in defining our earthly world according to measure, number, and weight. In this respect, the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century has seen splendid achievements. But our sense impressions, colors, and sounds flutter around in a totally indeterminate state. The physicists have stopped talking about colors and sounds altogether. They talk about air vibrations and ether vibrations, and those are neither colors nor sounds. Air vibrations are not sounds at all, but are at the most the medium in which sounds are carried. 
and there is not the slightest understanding of sensory qualities, this must be reacquired. Nowadays people actually only see what can be measured, weighed and counted, and the rest has evaporated. And when, into the bargain, the theory of relativity arrives on the scene and brings such tremendous disorder into all that can be measured, counted and weighed, as I described yesterday, everything falls apart. Yet, eventually, even this theory of relativity fails at certain points. Not where concepts are concerned, you cannot escape from the theory of relativity with earthly concepts, as I have already explained somewhere else, but reality will always take you beyond the concepts of relativity, for things that can be measured, counted and weighed enter through measure, number and weight into quite specific relationships in outer sense reality. In Stuttgart, a physicist, or a whole group of physicists, once took offense at the way anthroposophists were treating the theory of relativity. Then, in the course of a discussion, they demonstrated the simple experiment to show that it actually does not make any difference at all whether I strike the match on the matchbox or the or the matchbox on the match. In both cases, I light the match. So, it is relative. Certainly, it is still relative in this case. In fact, everything relating to Newtonian or Euclidean space is all relative. Yet as soon as we consider the reality of weight, it is not as easy as Einstein imagined, for real relationships now arise. Actually, we shall again have to speak paradoxically. Relativity insinuates itself if one mistakes mathematics, geometry and mechanics for the whole reality. But if you consider actual reality, it does not work any longer. For it really is not merely relative whether you eat the veil cutlet or the veil cutlet eats you. With a box of matches you can do it either way, but you have to eat the veil cutlet and cannot let it eat you. Things do exist to set a limit to these concepts of relativity, but these things are of such a nature that when they are spoken about in the outside world, people will say, quote, they do not understand the first thing about this serious theory, close quote. Yet the logic of it is, as I said, that is what it is like, and I can do nothing else about it. The essential thing to notice is that by considering the weight of an object, considering, that is, what actually makes it a physical object, colors and tones, etc., are in reality not included at all. If people go this way about it, however, something extremely important is lost, namely the artistic element. The more we depend on physics, the more we lose sight of art. Nobody will give an iota of art in present-day physics books. There is no art left in them. They must be stripped of all that. It is shattering to study a physics book nowadays if you still have the slightest feeling for beauty. Humanity has lost touch with art through the very fact that all that constitutes beauty in the way of colors and sounds has been disregarded and recognition is given only to what adheres to heavy objects. And the more scientific people become, the more inartistic they are. Let me read that again. And the more scientific people become, the more inartistic they are. Just think of our splendid knowledge of physics. Our opponents will certainly need to reprove us, anthroposophists, for saying that modern physics is superb 
yet it exists through the fact that it rejects art. It exists in each individual person through the rejection of art, for it has brought about the attitude in which artists no longer take any notice of what the physicists say. I do not imagine, for instance, that a musician bothers very much nowadays about studying the theory of acoustics. That would be far too dull to interest him. Nor would artists want to study the frightful theory of color that physics has to offer. If an artist is at all interested in color, as a rule he turns to Goethe's color theory. Yet, according to physicists, this theory is wrong. The physicists blink an eye and say, quote, well, it doesn't really matter whether an artist has the right or the wrong color theory. Close quote. The fact is that with our present scientific outlook, art will have to perish. So we now have to ask the question, quote, why did art exist in olden times? Close quote. If we go back to very ancient times, when people still had primitive clairvoyance, they were not so aware of the measure, number, and weight of earthly things. They were more interested in the colors and sounds of earthly objects than their measure, number, and weight. Just remember that it is only since the time of Lavoisier that we reckon with weight in chemistry, a little over a hundred years. Weight was not included in the conception of the world until the end of the 18th century. People in previous ages were just not conscious of things needing to be determined according to earthly measure, number, and weight. It was not the air vibrations that they were aware of, but the movements and waves of sound and the world's carpet of colors. Physical existence was accompanied by these experiences. What possibilities did this weight-free sense perception give them? It was possible for them, for instance, to have quite a different conception of mankind from the present one. Namely, they regarded mankind as the product of the whole cosmos. Man was a confluence of the cosmos. He was more a microcosm than that which is on this small spot of earth within the human skin. They thought of the human being more as an image of the world, the colors flooding in from all sides gave him the colors and the harmony of the spheres sounded through him, giving him his form. People nowadays can hardly understand anything of the way the teachers of the ancient mysteries spoke to their pupils. For if someone wants to explain the human heart nowadays, he takes an embryo and looks at the way the blood, vessel, blood vessels, first of all, broaden into a tube and then gradually form the heart. The teachers of the ancient mystery certainly did not talk to their pupils like that. That would not have struck them as being any more important than knitting a sock, for the process looks very similar. There was a different aspect to which they attached tremendous importance. They said, quote, The human heart is composed of the gold which lives everywhere in light. This pours down from the universe and actually forms the human heart. Close quote. They had mental images of a universe in which there weaves light, and this light contains gold. Light is full of gold which lives and moves within it. And during a person's earthly life, his heart, the substance of which is of course different at the end of seven years, is not composed of the steak, chips, and peas he has been eating. 
but the teachers of old knew that it was made of the gold from the light. The chips and peas are only the stimuli for the gold that comes from the light of the whole universe to construct the heart. People used to speak quite differently, and we must grow aware of how different it was, for we have to learn to speak like that again, only on a different level of consciousness. The last traces of what once existed in the realm of art, and which have now disappeared, namely painting from out of the universe, which they could do because weight still played no part, can be seen, for example, in Cimabue, and especially in Russian icons. Icons were painted from out of the world, from out of the macrocosm. They are like a little bit of the universe. Then this came to a dead end, and they could advance no further because humanity does not have this outlook any longer. If they had wanted to paint icons from out of their own knowledge instead of through tradition and prayer, they would have had to know how to use the gold. The way to use gold in their pictures was one of the greatest secrets of antique art. What made antique art was a knowledge of how to draw forth from out of the background of gold that which attains form in the human being. There is a tremendous gulf between Cimabue and Giotto, for Giotto actually started that which reached its peak in Raphael. Cimabue still worked out of tradition, whereas Giotto became half-naturalist. He was aware that tradition was no longer alive, that artists now had to come to terms with the physical human being, for the cosmos had receded, that they could no longer paint out of the gold, but had to paint out of flesh and blood. Then eventually art reached the point where it produced the sort of thing we often saw in the nineteenth century. Icons are without weight. They, quote, shone in, close quote, from the world. People cannot paint them nowadays, but in their original form they had no weight at all. Giotto was the first to paint things in such a way that they possessed weight. So it came about that everything people paint possesses weight in the picture too. And people now apply the paint from outside, so that the relationship of the colors to the painted object is just like the physicists say it is namely that color arises on the surface by means of a particular wave vibration. Art, too, has finally come to terms with weight. Only when Giotto began it, it was artistic and beautiful, and Raphael brought it to the peak of perfection. So we can say, quote, The universe receded from mankind, and all that people could now see was man as a being of weight. So flesh took on weight. Yet because feeling for olden times still existed, it, so to speak, took on as little weight as possible. And the Madonna came into being in contrast to the icons, icons being weightless, whereas the Madonna has weight even though she is beautiful. Beauty still persisted, but icons are now absolutely unpaintable because human beings do not experience them. If people believe they experience them today, they are being untruthful. Hence the cultivation of icons fell prey to a certain sentimental untruthfulness. Art has come to a dead end there and has become traditional and mechanical. Their, uh, readers aside, there should be a close quote in there somewhere 
but uh, I, I don't believe it was printed. End of readers aside. Raphael's style of painting, which actually arose out of what Giotto took from Cimabue, can remain artistic only so long as the glow of beauty from ancient times still irradiates it. It was, so to speak, the sunny Renaissance artists who were the ones still to feel something of the gold that weaves in light, and who gave their pictures a glowing light in which the gold weaving in light could at least irradiate them from outside. But this came to an end, and naturalism arose. And nowadays, where art is concerned, humanity sits between two stools, the icon and the Madonna. And it is up to us to discover the nature of free-flowing color and free-flowing sound, which have the kind of weight which is opposite to measurability and weighable countability. We must learn to paint out of the color. However primitive and poor our present experiments in this direction are, it is our duty to paint out of the color and to experience color itself free of weight. We must become capable of tackling things consciously, also in an artistic way. If you look at our elementary attempts at programs, you will see that although it is only a beginning, it is at least a beginning in the direction of freeing the colors from weight, experiencing color as a self-supporting element and getting the colors to speak. If it is successful, then compared to the inartistic world outlook of physics, which allows art to evaporate altogether, here from out of the element of free color and sound, the kind of art is being created that will again be free of weight. We are certainly sitting between two stools, the icon and the Madonna, but we must arise. Materialistic science will not help us. As I told you, we would have stayed lying down forever if we applied nothing but materialistic science to the human being. But the time has come to rise. To do this, we really require spiritual science. This contains the element of life that will bear us from weight to weightless color, to the reality of color, from being bound to musical naturalism to a free art of music, and so on. In every sphere, we see that humanity has to pull itself together and wake up. This is the impulse we need the impulse to awaken and open our eyes to see what is and what is not and where the challenges to progress lie. That is actually why I had to and wanted to close with these particular observations, both during the Delegates' Conference and now, just before my summer visit to England. These things certainly touch the nerve of our times, and it is essential that we allow the rest to shine from our movement in the way I have attempted to describe. I told you that a modern philosopher has reached the point where he admits that the answer to the question, quote, where does intellectualism lead, close quote, is to build a gigantic machine, put it in the center of the earth, and blow the earth sky high. This philosopher admits it, but the rest of them do not. I have attempted in innumerable ways for instance, I told you yesterday that the concepts of thirty or forty years ago have been undone by the theory of relativity and simply dissolve like snow in the sun. I have attempted to show you that everywhere we are being challenged to turn to anthroposophy, 
For does not the philosopher Edward Fart Hartman say, quote, if the world is really like we think it is, close quote, according to the way of thought of the 19th century, quote, it would be impossible to stand it, and we should have to explode it into space, close quote. We only have to reach the point of being able to do it. We should be longing for the time when we can blast the world to the far reaches of the universe. In the meantime, the relativists are taking care that human beings do not have any concepts left. Space, time, movement are evaporating. So we could anyhow be driven to such despair that we might possibly prefer to be blown to smithereens. We just have to get to know very clearly the particular impulses of our time. The end of Lecture 11